Welcome to Prepare to Care, the ARP podcast with resources and tools to support the millions of family caregivers who provide unpaid care to their loved ones. I'm Marie Pierre, your host for this podcast. When we think of caregiving, we often think of family. The daughter is taking care of her parents, the husband takes care of his wife, siblings taking care of each other or their parents. It's a beautiful thing to be able to count on your family in time of need. But what happens when things escalate to a point where professional care is needed? A classic example are loved ones who develop dementia and need specialized care, or perhaps a new job is not as flexible in the understanding of your caregiving needs. What do you do then? So today we have invited Nancy Wilson, who is a professor of geriatric medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. Um, Nancy will give us some insights on how to decide when it is time to transition and receive care in a professional setting and the range of options for residential settings with services. Coming up on Prepare to Care. Nancy, um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So, Nancy, um, we, we talked a little bit um, uh, before we, we got on air, and uh, and one thing that came up was very often for uh, most of us, there is this dread that something might happen where we might have to uh, place a loved one in in a home. And we use the word place. And, and you had some feelings about that when I used this word. Yes, thank you, Marie. Well, I think one of the things that that um, we have to recognize is that as we age um, and um, need help and need care over time, sometimes there's this view on the part of our family or even ourselves that, oh, is this um, a, a setting where I can continue to live safely and with joy? And I think as the daughter or as the husband, um, uh, sometimes we think, oh, I really feel like it would be in the best interest of my loved one to relocate into another setting. And But when we get into conversations with um, medical professionals, maybe someone's leaving the hospital, it's like, well, maybe you could think about placement. And I think for a long time, we thought about the transition from home into another residential setting as something that we're, we're doing to someone. And, and I think the model that we want to think about is most of us as adults, um, and really even starting as children, want to be involved in the decisions that are going to affect our lives on a day-to-day basis. Um, and while, um, the, and ideally that's what we want to think about this as any other sort of decision that we would make over time in our lives to be able to participate in that decision and not to have somebody do something to us or about our lives that we're not involved with. Yeah, so when we say we play someone, it sounds almost like we're sticking them in like a, the adult orphanage or something, right? <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a great image. And I want to just acknowledge that um, a growing percentage of us, if we live into our 80s, may face a time where our cognitive skills, our memory, and our thinking are not so good. And we, in fact, may not necessarily choose to relocate. But even in that instance where maybe we're feeling like we're making a decision on behalf of someone, we don't really want to adopt the view of we're just putting them someplace. We want to think about how can they be involved or how can I understand what they need and what they would want 
in a way that makes it feel like a decision that's respectful as opposed to treating them like an object or like an orphan, as you say. Right. So I, I remember um, when my, uh, my father-in-law, um, you know, at some point was ill and um, not terribly ill, but he, he just couldn't quite function. And he asked us to look for a solution. And what he ended up in was some residential facility. To me, what it reminded me was like a dorm, like a college dorm, right? I mean, there was like a, right. he had his own room, but there was a time when people could eat together. And he ended up being surprisingly happy about it. So tell us about the, the range of things that, that are available. Well, um, Re, first, I love that story because you began it by saying that he asked you to be involved in finding the solution. So it didn't sound like you showed up, you and your husband one day and said, okay, we're moving out, dad. And I think that's, ideally, these are conversations that we have well ahead of when we face that need or that we have enough of a positive, respectful relationship that it can be a shared decision. So, um, and it sounds like from what you're describing of your father-in-law's environment, he might have lived, moved into a residential um, setting where there was what we think of as um, kind of independent living with services. So many of these are referred to as retirement communities or continuing care retirement communities where perhaps someone has their own apartment, but then they have availability of meals and housekeeping and that sort of assistance. And that can be one gradual entry into accepting help for care. Now, what we need to usually understand about these more independent residential living facilities is that um, we have to have the ability to pay for that assistance. And so it's um, not unlike, as you described, the dormitory environment where um, we're going to day-to-day manage what goes on in our household, but we're going to have some added sort of support. Um, if let's just take your father-in-law's story perhaps if he were living in the apartment and developed some memory and thinking problems or perhaps he no longer could easily get to the dining room you know that um then the chances are he might need another level of assistance that we call actually assisted living (laughs) and assisted living facilities anytime someone is um, living in a setting where there's four or more people receiving help with meals and day-to-day care, not doing that all independently, then that's a licensed facility and there are two levels in the state of Texas. And these can be very personal care homes, someone's home setting that they have taken additional individuals to live with them and provide care and almost like group living. Like oh, many interesting. Of us, yeah, group living like we think of in college, you yeah. know, communal living. Yes. <laughs> but there's a caretaker and these are regulated you know, facilities. Or there are some settings that are more like an, a wing of a residential setting where there's more care and services provided than independent living or a freestanding setting that and and the difference has to do with whether or not you need assistance with evacuation. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. So we have to think about that. So the different licensures um, exist, and the beauty of that is assisted living. You can still have the option of group care, but you have more assistance than you would get in your own apartment. I see. So, and, and I'd always thought that the assisted living would be in large facilities. What you're telling me is you might be able to find a house with just four people. It's yes. Like, it's like yes. a small daycare center when you when you look for a baby, right? You have right. a range of options. Right, right. And these kind of what they've come to be um, fly under the name of kind of personal care homes is oftentimes we have 
maybe nurses or other individuals that have a, a real passion around the care of older adults and who um, have approached this level of assistance. Again, one of the things we need to be mindful of is that this level of assistance generally is a private pay option. It's not something that is easily provided under, if you don't have the ability to pay or a family doesn't have the ability to pay, but um, there are many nice you know, features of it. So if you don't have the means to do that, what other options are available? So thank you for asking that question. I think this is the challenge that many of us face um, in later life. So, um, so I want to acknowledge that some people make decisions early enough in life to purchase long-term care insurance. It's a private insurance option, not unlike health care insurance. And through long-term care insurance, sometimes people can pay for this assisted living or personal care help. Um, it usually depends on your insurance is triggered by how much um, you need help with daily living. But many of us are not going to be able to afford a monthly premium over time to right. pay into long-term care insurance. And in that case, um, our, our public system of health insurance is under something called Medicaid. Right. And many of us you know, have Medicare, but Medicaid is the option, is become the ins public insurance option that reimburses for long-term care. And typically, there are two ways you have to qualify for Medicaid help. You have to qualify in terms of your functional need, what you need help with. And, you know, is it um, uh, such that it's not just like, oh, I'm tired of cooking. I'll get <laughs> Medicaid right? to pay for someone to cook for me. You have to have some dependencies and personal care tasks. And then the other, um, the financial eligibility is a combination of looking at income and assets. And many of us... Um, may have to spend, well, oftentimes we face the challenge of having to spend our savings considerably to qualify. It's too detailed probably to get into discussion, right. but it's important to know ahead of time about, about that. About so that. what I'm hearing is you really should plan ahead of time while you're still well for yourself to make those decisions, to either look at long-term care or look how far your savings will take you if you have to be in the facility at some point. Excellent point. Yes. And I think it's also important because we want to have a conversation with our families and make no assumptions <laughs> that, that, okay, you know, that uh, whether family will be able to pay, contribute to our care or will not be able to contribute to our care. And also another dimension of that that I'm sure you've thought about and other people have too, which is what type of house are we living in? Is it well prepared for us to become more um, physically disabled. I recently had this experience myself in thinking about, do you have a house with stairs? Can you, could you put a ramp in? Could you, you know, could you literally get in and out of your own house if you were no longer physically mobile? So these are things that, yeah, these are things to maybe think about first, right? And then um, what about the emotional aspects of it? I'm thinking, okay, here you are in your house. You may have been living in your house for a very long time. Um, what would be the recommendation for those conversations when, as a family member, you notice things are getting a lot harder, um, but mom or dad have been there for quite a while, they like the house, but you're starting to be worried? Right, right. And I think worry is a really important emotion to, to bring up. And so I think um, first we have to say to ourselves, 
what is it I'm most worried about? And sometimes that worry is um, maybe I'm embarrassed about how they're housekeeping or how they're presenting themselves when they're going to church. You know, is that the thing I'm most concerned about? Is it an embarrassment issue? Or is it something about their actual safety and, you know, well-being? So I think getting in touch with what it is we're concerned about is really important. Or maybe what it is, is I'm worried that I can't continue to help them in the way in which I've been helping them. So, um, so, I, so I think these conversations on the caregiving side start with an honest reflection about ourselves. And then from there, once we can be clear about, you know, dad, I'm, I can't sleep at night because I'm worried you're gonna fall down the stairs, then, then we figure out how are we gonna, you know, have a conversation with dad about that. I suggest families look for naturally incurring opportunities to bring those discussions up. The death of a, of a friend or a relative, you can you know, say, hey, you know, I was thinking about this or the illness of someone else and say, we've never really talked about this. You know, I wonder what you would, you know, what would you like me to do or what would you think about? Um, but I think it's important to know not only what your emotions are about it, but anticipate how they might respond um to the situation and and then uh, talk to me a little bit like there's a, because there are all these images i think you know in the media and so on of okay we, we're gonna literally park you know mom in a retirement home where she's gonna leave the end of her days and and this is like the final stop and it's like all these terrible images right and when we interview caregivers on the show a lot of them say oh well i i i I place, and they use the word place, I place mom in whatever, you know, uh, some kind of facility for the last like two months of her life or whatever it is. I'm, I get the sense that there's so much guilt that people wait a long time to make the decision. Um, yeah, so I think you brought up several things there. First, I think um, when we're exploring different options and possibilities for making a change, it's important to think about what do I know about what level of help is needed, but also what would be important to my loved one? Yeah. Um, my grandmother lived to the age of 98, was no longer able to live on her farm. The most important thing to her was to hear birds. So I knew wherever she was gonna transition to live, that you know I wanted her to be have that opportunity to be able to hear birds. So I know that seems like a small thing, but you have to kind of get to the core of what's important to this person. If you've done everything you can to provide the help, but also think about what feeds their spirit. And that, I think that kind of is a really important conversation, but also will help you adjust. So really what we focus on very often, what I'm hearing on is what we focus on is the location, but maybe what's important is hearing birds, being close to family, being visited, you know, on right. a regular basis. Right. I, I knew a friend's mom, she liked to have her drink every day. Yes. And so the happy hour was fine right. by her, you know, because she liked the, she liked mingling with people. She was a really happy person. So, um, and that made her happy. Right, right. So interesting. That's a really, or, or you're in a facility where animals come to visit regularly or that they have actual pets in the in the long-term care setting, if that's what's important to you. So it is really important, I think, to not just think about um, what someone needs to, you know, physically in terms of their day-to-day -day care, that's important, and talking to people about the quality of care. I should say there are lots of information sources, you know, at the state level, at the federal level now, where people can find out about inspection reports and quality things. But as in most decisions, whether we were looking for childcare, 
for college, <laughs> for jobs, networking and talking to other people whose opinion you respect and who perhaps are in the same community or geography, that's a great source of information because oftentimes reputation lag reality. So inspection reports can be old. <laughs> um, and I think visits, always visits and wherever possible, offering people choices. You know, we are, we're a menu society. I see. So, so if, if mom or dad is looking for contemplating the thought of going to uh, places, it, it's really like choosing daycare or school or college or an apartment. Go see a few places. Is that what you would a recommend? Absolutely. I think whenever possible, make visits and make visits at key times, meal times, I think are a great opportunity to observe the social interaction, not to mention to be able to taste the food. Okay. Um, you know, in, in whatever setting you're going to, those can be really key things because you may be eating that food every day for a long time. Um, so I think, yes, regular visiting, observing, and then uh, having, you know, finding out from them, well, do you have friends? I've known whole neighborhoods who ended up making decisions about where to move because they were going to be able to relocate with their social network. Do I have people who speak my language? Do I have people of my same faith community? You know, all those sorts of factors that are part of our life. These are important things. What would you recommend for um, for the caregivers, that, that feeling of, of guilt? Like, so, I should do this myself and I'm not going to. Right. Well, I, so I think um, with every transition, I find there's several phases in our lives. And there's a period of time at the beginning where you're really ending something. And maybe what they're ending is this image of myself as the daughter who could do it all and help them, you know, uh, continue to be here. Um, you know, there's grief involved and oftentimes grief has a piece of guilt about it. But the more we've gone about the process in a way that we can feel good about. So did I allow choice? Did I involve them in the decision? Did I think about who they were? Um, those are important things. But the other thing is we all have our limits. And so when I say go into these conversation decisions, it's important if you know you are at the point where you can no longer do more, then you don't want to talk about conversations where, well, maybe I could continue to do this or maybe we can think about this month. I think really it's important to recognize we have um, limits. And then as far as guilt, I think um, like any grief process, um, seek support from other people and also try to focus on what was accomplished. We tend to focus on good point. what wasn't done. You shared that you saw your father-in-law thrive socially. You saw him have meals, you know. Um, we want to make sure that we're just not, we're observing the possibilities and not just focusing on the loss. So um, for our listeners, I think that's great advice. Like give yourself a pat on the back for all that you have done and, and, and that this last step is just another step in the, in the process. So Nancy, that's about all the time we have today. If you had one last piece of advice for our listeners, what would it be? Um, I would say it's important to think about what matters to an individual who's going to need to be making a transition, what they value most, what's been important to them throughout their lives, and think about how you yourself, if you were making a transition, would want to be involved in that transition 
and what's going to help your relationship going forward. And sometimes it's making a change into a new environment that you might not have never have been open to. But if you focus on what matters to yourself, to or to the individual, to yourself, and to your relationship, chances are you'll have a better outcome. Great. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you for coming today. Um, so we've spoken with Nancy Wilson, who is a professor of geriatric medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and one of our premier aging experts in Houston. Um, if you want to follow up on some of the information she mentioned today, check out Baylor's website. That's www.bcm.edu. Nancy, thank you. Thank you. As always, if you thought this podcast was helpful, or if you have friends or family who are new to caregiving, invite them to follow the Prepare to Care podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, or at www.aarp.org slash HoustonPTC. I'm going to repeat that. That's www.aarp.org slash HoustonPTC. Also, take our Prepare to Care podcast survey. Help us improve future episodes and find other caregiving planning and local resources to help you and your loved ones. Thank you for listening. And as always, thanks for caring.